If you're here this morning with us and you're without a Bible, there's some men coming up the aisles right now. Just raise your hand. They'll spot you and get your Bible in your hand. And we really want everybody to see all these things with their own eyes from the Bible. And so we want to get one of those into your hands. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we find ourselves, and wonderfully so, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus proceeded to ask them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David, in the Spirit, call the Christ, or the Messiah, Lord? saying, The Lord, that is the Father, said to my Lord, that is the the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus asked them, If David then calls the Messiah Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And we take a moment in prayer here to just acknowledge the greatness of your love for each one of us personally. We are so thankful that you recognize that we are but dust and the greatness of our need, Lord. And we're thankful, Lord, for your desire to meet our needs and to be our God. And we pray, Lord, even as we turn now to your word, that anything that you want to say to us from your word, even before we study it, we say yes to it. We want to obey anything that you tell us to do. We want to honor you that way. We want to enjoy the full, fullest Christian life that a person can experience this side of heaven. We only ask that you would speak to us personally in our hearts by your Holy Spirit from your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've seen even in recent weeks, we find Jesus at this point in time in his ministry and the events that are recorded here within days of his death upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Indeed, he is, has less than a handful of days before he will be crucified. His popularity among the common people is absolutely soaring, and it is growing by the day. But his popularity among the common people is coming at the expense of the Jewish religious leaders of his day, which were broken up into three main sects, 
known as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. And because they're threatened by his growing popularity, each one of these groups in turn takes it upon themselves to interrupt Jesus in his public teaching in Jerusalem of his disciples to pose a question to him, endeavoring to trap him. That what they're wanting to do is ask him the most controversial questions that were floating around among God's people in those days, questions that had evenly divided the Jews in those days, in the hopes that no matter what position he takes on the question, he will alienate at least half of his disciples, lose them, and it will begin to blunt his, his popularity. And so this is the uh, in, intention behind the questions that are being asked. The Herodians and the Pharisees were the first to step up to the plate and their attempt to trap Jesus with a question about paying taxes to Caesar, that is to Rome. The Sadducees followed with a question of theirs having to do with the legitimacy of the resurrection or the supernatural. And then finally here in this uh, series of oral exams that are being brought to Jesus in our passage this morning, a lawyer who is uh, numbered among the Pharisees poses another potentially uh, divisive question on the subject of which of all of the Old Testament commandments uh, is the greatest. Notice in verse 35 the questioner is described as a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer, as you read about them in the Gospels, is different from a lawyer uh, in our culture. A lawyer today, when we talk about someone being a lawyer, they are an expert in some field of, of law, or they are expert in secular law. They are an expert in laws that uh, men have made up. The lawyers that are spoken of in the Bible, these were not experts in uh, social law or man's uh, man-made law. They were experts in God's law. They were experts in the Old Testament. This was a man who had given his whole life to the study of the law and the prophets, which is a description of the Old Testament, so that anyone could come to him at any time, pose a question from their personal life and say, what in the world does God's law say about this circumstance? What am I to do? And that he would not find himself stumped by the question, but be able to answer it from God's law. This guy knew the Old Testament inside and out. His question is an interesting one. There in verse 36, Teacher, he said, which is the great commandment in the law? This uh, question of what is the single greatest commandment in the law of Moses was a question that the Jewish people and Jewish religious leaders had been batting around for literally hundreds of years. They had divided the law of Moses into uh, 248 positive commands and 365 prohibitions. They looked at the law of Moses and they said, we see in the law of Moses 613 distinct commandments, a portion of them positive, a portion of them prohibitions or negative. They declared that the 248 positive commands corresponded to the number of 
uh, body parts that made up the human body and that the 365 prohibitions corresponded to the 365 days of the year and what all of it communicated is that was, a person was to obey God every day of the year with the totality of their body. They uh, further noticed that in the Ten Commandments, if you take them in the original language and you take each letter, it totals up to 613 letters, the same number of commandments that they got out of the total law of Moses. And this is the kind of thing that they were doing. This is what they did with the Word of God and with the commandments, the things that they uh, mused upon. And uh, so this was the kind of thing that happened. They would take some laws and they would debate over which of them was uh, a lighter law and which was a heavier law, which was a, a more important law and which was a less important law. And they categorized them as heavy and light and taught in many cases that it was okay to disobey a light commandment in order to obey a heavy commandment or a greater commandment. In other words, uh, it would be lawful to lie if the lie resulted in saving somebody's life. So, in, so for instance, in current uh, history, recent history uh, of, of mankind, if the SS came to your house in Germany or an occupied territory and you were harboring Jews, According to their handling of the law and the light and the heavy of the laws, you could lie to the SS officer if it prevented the death of, of a Jew. And, and so they, they working on all this kind of stuff and the categorizing and, and the, and their whole world kind of, uh, wrapped around the, the word. And, uh, but the more they got involved in all of it and the more that they discussed it and they categorized it and they messed with all of these really simple commands, the more complicated everything uh, became. And especially when they began to add their own laws and their own interpretations and their own traditions to the law of Moses until ultimately, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they look at the law of Moses as just being hopelessly complex. So they wanted a starting point. They wanted to know what is the single greatest commandment in the entirety of the law of Moses? And that will be the grid upon which we will uh, interpret and give weight to all of the rest of the commandments. And so these religious leaders, they spent half of their time expanding and complicating the law of God into this hopeless complexity. And then as a, a result of it, they spent the other half of their time trying to simplify it. So, Jesus, could you tell us, in your opinion, what is the single great commandment from the law of Moses by which we are to judge all of the other commandments in the applying of the Scriptures to the nitty-gritty of life in this very fallen world? Now, the motive of the lawyer there in verse 35 was to test Jesus. The question is a great question. You can't bring that, not only is it a great question, you can't bring it to a greater person to ask it. Oh, that's great. But it's not an entirely honest question. He asked the question in order to test Jesus, in order to tempt Jesus. And so his motive supremely wasn't to receive a, a revelation from Jesus, though he's going to get that, but in order to test him or to trap him. 
And so, again, that no matter what commandment Jesus would say is the greatest commandment, that it would divide his following. Some would agree, some would disagree, and again, it would blunt his, his growing popularity. Now, Jesus answers the man's uh, question, and uh, he answers it uh, without any hesitation at all. Uh, in uh, verse 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And here he is quoting from the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. And what he's essentially saying is that the first and greatest purpose of a person's life is to love God with all of our being. We are to love Him with all of our heart. And that speaks of our emotions. Isn't it wonderful to have someone in this world that we can express our emotions to who will never use it back against us, who is completely safe to pour our heart out to, will never ridicule us or rebuke us or make fun of us or use it as a, a weapon against us. The highest use of human emotion is to use it in the expression of our love for God. I think about a friend that I was talking with this last week and we were discussing a particular author together. The author is now long ago gone to be with the Lord. And uh, very, very deep in the Lord, a great love for the Lord. And my friend, as I was talking to him, he was talking about a favorite part of one of the books. And he said, you know, I was sitting and I was reading it. And he said, as I read it, I couldn't help but begin to weep. One of the toughest guys you'd ever want to know. But I'll tell you something. Tears are their own language. And God understands tears. He also understands our emotions. I think about how we're led in worship each week. Now, we're worshiping God right now in the study of His Word. So we haven't ceased worshiping by opening the Bible. But each week we're led in the worship of God in song. Why? We need that. It's a part of obeying this commandment to love the Lord with all of our heart. God's been so good to us. He's done so many things for us. We're in the middle of such trials and such difficulty and such change. We have a need to express not only our mind, but to express our heart to God. And these worship songs allow us to do that, to love Him with all of our heart, just as Jesus said. I think that sometimes it's very good for us to hear it because sometimes Christians can view all emotions or being emotional as something that's bad, as something that's carnal. Now, our emotions can be carnal, but it's going way too far to say there shouldn't be an emotional, a huge emotional dimension to a Christian's life. But that emotion needs to be directed where it's safe, directed toward uh, the Lord. It's not something bad. It's not a mark of carnality or a mark of weakness. There's always, I think, in our hearts where the Lord is working in our lives a very, very hearty praise the Lord right under the surface waiting to be expressed. If somebody gives us the chance and week in and week out, the worship team does that and others do it in our lives too. We're to love the Lord with all of our soul. Jesus said. This speaks of our free will. This speaks of our choices in life, 
our decision-making in life. All of our choices, all of our decision-making in life are to be used as just another way to express our love for God. As we fall in love with the Lord, as He's so good to us, when we don't deserve it, He shouldn't even want to associate with us. We've failed once again, and yet He picks us up and He dusts us off and we, we move forward in, in things. And, and we have, in our heart, we prize every single way that God has given us to express our love to Him for how good and how gracious He is to us. And I think that it's wonderful to realize that to stop and say, I want every decision that I make in life, every choice that I make in life, to be an expression of my love for Him, and to realize that He will view and receive that decision as wonderfully as any worship song that we'll ever sing to the Lord. And so to worship Him with our, our, our choices, and, and our choices in our decision-making in life, are to be dominated by our love for Him. What decision in this situation would bless His heart? What decision would best express my love toward Him? And then making that decision. We're to love Him with all of our mind. With all, love Him with all of our intellect. All of the powers of our mind. The highest use of the human mind is to explore God. To come to know God to explore the riches of His Word and of His promises and of His nature, and then to take what we learn from God and, and about God and then take that and not only have it be reserved for our mind, but then to take it and expose the greatness of God and the beauty of God to the world around us. To take what we learn about God as we take, and we've all got different levels of SAT scores, all different varying abilities with which we can communicate ourselves, varying degrees which, with which we can understand concepts. But to take our minds and, and to be able to go deep into the things of, of, of the Lord, the highest use of of the human mind, and it is to love Him in that way, to say, the greatest thing that I used my mind for in the course of my life is to grow in God, to explore God, to love and to bless my God. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if we lived in a world where there was no God to put our mind on, there's no Bible to set our mind on. None of its themes, none of its truths, none of its realities, none of its richness. That the only thing that we could put our minds on in this world would be put it on the themes of this world, the emptiness of the world, the sin of the world, the frustrations of the world, the meaninglessness of the world, the fallenness and defilement of the world. And then for the mind that we have to take it as far as the mind can go, and a mind is a curious thing, and to be forced to use this mind, the only place in which it could be exercised is in that direction. We'd all go crazy. But we have a God, and we have a Bible, and we have the ability to love God with our minds. And the beautiful privilege that is ours to be able to take this mind and bring it into the harbor of God's Word, 
and to set it on God, to set it on God's Word, God's themes, God's realities, and to know that no damage will be done to our mind as we do that. Our mind will become rich. Our mind will be exercised in a way that nothing else in the world can exercise our minds. It is the expression of our love for God is the highest use of the human mind. It's a privilege, it's a blessing to be able to love the Lord with all of our mind. And then Mark's account also includes the fact that we're to love the Lord with all of our strength, all of our physical strength and all of our being. This includes our actions. This includes the use of our bodies, the expression of our bodies, the use of our physical strength, where we say, Lord, I want every expression of my physical health. I want every bit of strength that is supplied to my body by every calorie that you so graciously give to me. I want all of that strength to be used for things that will bless you. I want to use my physical strength as one more way of expressing my love for you. And so the greatest commandment in the law is to use every part of our lives, the totality of our lives, inside and out, up and down, to express our love for God. And then notice in verse 39, Jesus goes on to throw in the second greatest commandment without being asked. This is a bonus answer. And he declares, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And speaking of man's responsibility to love his neighbor as himself. Why would he throw in the second commandment? I think there might be a couple of reasons. They didn't ask him for two, they just asked for one, he gave them two. And I think that one of the reasons that he gave them the second commandment is he's in front of a largely religious crowd. Probably 95% of the crowd would have agreed with his answer that the single most important commandment in all of the law of Moses is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And I think there's a chance that he anticipates their second question. Oh yeah, we mean after that one. Because everybody kind of knew that one. I think that also he quotes the second commandment because it is so intimately connected with the first commandment. One of the best ways that God has given us to express our love for him is in loving our neighbor. The simple fact of the matter is, is that no one can we truly come to know God personally and deeply without also developing a love for our fellow man. Sure, they can frustrate the living daylights out of us. And I know I do my share of frustrating for people. But to come to know God and to grow in God is to become like Him. And God happens to love people. Now notice that Jesus tells us not only that we're to love our neighbor... Uh, that would have been good enough. But he tells us the degree we're to love our neighbor uh, as ourselves. In other words, we're to love our neighbor just the way we already love ourselves. To look at another person in life, the circumstance that they're in, and to think to myself, if I were in 
that circumstance, what would I want someone to do for me? And then to do it. To look at somebody in this situation and say, if I were in that same exact situation, what would I want someone to say to me? And then to say that in that situation. And it might be a bag of groceries, it might be buying a tank of gas for somebody, driving someone to a doctor's appointment who can't get to a doctor's appointment, or someone home from a same-day surgery. It might be a note or a card that's sent in the mail or a phone call. It could be a hug, a word of encouragement. It can take a lot of different forms. Now notice in this exchange that Jesus has with this lawyer, that Jesus only gives him two commandments. There is no third commandment that Jesus gives, only two. The reason that I mention it is that today a third commandment has been added to Jesus' two commandments in kind of popular teaching. I remember about 25 years ago when the church was first starting, I think the whole world, the whole United States anyway, and California was the epicenter at that time of the self-esteem movement, also known as the selfishness movement. But I mean, everything was self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem. I mean, this thing was like the blob that swallowed St. Louis. You could not get away from it. It was gobbling everything up. All educators, everybody that was in the self-help fields. And it even moved very strongly into the church. And, and the whole self-esteem thing became a focus of teaching uh, in, uh, among the body of Christ. It was interesting. I remember way back then they, had a, they did a test, a, a poll of our, our students who were in high school in the United States at that time during the self-esteem uh, craze, and at that time our students were near bottom in virtually every subject category compared to the other industrialized nations of the world. And yet, we tested very well in the realm of self-esteem. In fact, we had the highest self-esteem of any students in the entire industrialized world. I'm not putting students down. Uh, 25 years ago, listen, I got my education in public schools from 1969 to 1973. I don't know that it could be lower than what I was exposed to back then. Probably is, but that's the way that it was pretty bad back then in terms of, of learning. So here we were teaching our students to feel good about not being very good. The main thing was that you felt good about, about yourself. But this whole introduction of the third commandment into the body of Christ, it went something like this. Well, Jesus said that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what if I don't love myself? What if I really don't like myself? What if I hate myself? I think I need, I can't, I can't love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love myself first. And then after I learn how to love myself first, then I'll know how to love my neighbor as myself. And this kind of thing goes on, even very strong influence even within Christianity to this day. But Jesus is not saying that we need to learn to love ourselves, but that we are to love ourselves just the way we already love 
ourselves. Love others the way that we've already loved ourselves. The fact of the matter is that we don't need to learn how to love ourselves more. We do it very, very naturally. Let's say you have a Labor Day picnic tomorrow. The whole family comes over. You've got a lot of family, extended family, 30 people. Somebody gets you all put together, rolled up near one another to take a picture of the family gathering there. And they take the picture and somebody gets it in on the computer so everybody can gather around the computer and see the picture. Who do you look at first in that picture? You know who you look at first. If you don't look at you first, it's only because you've heard a sermon like this before and you just kind of look over here. But you, know, you look at like unimportant, unimportant, unimportant. Oh, there we are right here. But I didn't go to him right at the first. Now, the first thing we think is, now, where was I standing in that group? And we look right at him. And then we judge the quality of the picture based solely upon how I look in it. The picture can be a stellar picture of everybody else. They look absolutely fabulous. They're ready to model for magazines or something like that. And I get caught blinking. Terrible picture. Let's take another one again. Solely based upon me. Or we look at the thing and I look absolutely fabulous in the picture. Ready for a modeling career. And then everybody else is looking around or blinking or a little bit of drool coming out of their mouth. And, and I say, it's the greatest picture we've ever taken. Let's make it the Christmas card picture for this year. <laughs> do you ever notice it when someone gets to an open parking spot before you do? Do you ever notice when someone gets more attention than you do? You ever notice when other lines are moving faster than your line at the supermarket? Why does that bother you? Because you're in the slow line. Now, the fact of the matter is, is we think a lot about ourselves and we really do love ourselves. Even the person that says, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself, I'm so ugly. But if they really hated themselves, they'd be glad they were ugly. Now, the reason that they've they got the problems that they have is that they're completely self-consumed. And it's a dead-end street. The Bible operates from the vantage point that as fallen descendants of Adam and Eve, we love ourselves and we are self-consumed. Paul wrote concerning husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, and he said, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Let each of you look not out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. By nature, we're self-consumed. You don't have to teach us selfishness. We're born with it. There's descendants of Adam and Eve. None of you that has children ever had to teach your child how to throw a selfish little temper tantrum. You didn't have to say, listen, this is the first, you're a toddler now. This is the first time I'm taking you into a store. Why don't you go up to the candy counter, find the one you like, 
You demand that I buy it for you. I'll refuse you. You throw yourself on the floor and kick those little chubby legs of yours up in the air and, uh, and scream that you hate me until I buy the, the candy. You don't have to teach a kid to do something or even something approaching that. That happens all on its own, and then we have to uh, deal with it. Hopefully, uh, we, we will deal with it and uh, won't leave it to somebody else to deal with. Did you see the article this, this week about the man, the child was misbehaving in the store? So he's 65 years old. He just took it on himself. He went up and d- disciplined the child on his own. Unfortunately, he slapped the child four times, so he can't be doing that. He's probably arrested over it. So, but this is the way that, that we are, self-consumed, absolutely selfish. The problem with a person saying, I need to learn to love myself in order to love others, is that you'll never stop that. Loving myself, being self-consumed, will gobble up every single waking moment of my life and leave me absolutely zero time to obey the two legitimate commandments that God has given to us, the two great commandments that Jesus has given to us that translate into the greatest life that a person can live. It's a dead-end street. And that's why we have to be careful of this idea of the third commandment. We love, are to love one another, or love others just the way that we love ourselves, show that same kind of concern and interest for others. Now, Jesus' commentary on all of this in, in, in verse 40 is very interesting to me. He said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He declares that these two commandments are an encapsulation, fair encapsulation, of the entirety of the Hebrew Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Circle it, maybe in your Bible, but certainly in your mind. Notice his use of the word hang there. It's very interesting. Because in the original language, that word means to hang someone or something. It means to suspend. It means to crucify. And we notice that the first commandment to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength has to do with man's vertical relationship with God. And the second great commandment that we're to love our neighbor as ourself has to do with man's horizontal relationships with his fellow man. And you put the two commandments together and you end up with a cross. Because the cross is the encapsulation of the entirety of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, in terms of a demonstration of love. It is the supreme demonstration of love in human history, of loving God the Father with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and the loving of our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus ended up on that cross out of his love for the Father, out of his love for his fellow man, so to speak, because only Jesus' death upon the cross makes it possible to obey those two commands. Only the person that has put their faith in Christ for salvation and been born again by the Holy Spirit possesses the will to do and the power to do of those two commandments. 
Sometimes I watch PBS. Sometimes on the PBS station they do all kinds of concerts, don't they do different things? And, you know, one of my favorites is John Tesh at Red Rock. I am totally kidding. (laughs) You may like John Tesh, but God bless you for that. That's... That's why they made rock and roll for pe- other people. But anyway, so, so they got all these concerts and different things that go on. And then they got a lot of these motivational speakers, too. I think like the, the event, listen, it's good, this is probably going to make me famous and rich. But the event for PBS will probably be to have one of these motivational gurus speak at Red Rock. What do you, huh? Listen, it was just an idea. I mean, I just, I'm floundering here. But I, a few weeks ago, I was watching one of these, these self-help gurus, and this guy was just outstanding. I mean, he was really, really good. I just looked at him, and he said, that's just outrageous that a person has the ability to communicate in that way. I mean, it was really, really something. And basically, you take everything that he said over like two hours, I was hitting, you know, a little bit here and the deal. You sit down with these guys and you listen to everything that they're saying. And what they do say that's worthwhile is essentially an encapsulation of those two commandments. But the problem is, what they cannot deliver is the ability to keep those commandments So you make me listen to three hours of what I should do toward God and what I should do toward my fellow man, but you don't give me the will to do it or the power to do it, then your talk mocks me. It makes fun of me. It frustrates me. But Christianity is entirely different. Because God lays the two commandments out and because of Jesus' death upon that cross gives us the ability to obey the vertical and the horizontal commandments because the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us the desire to and the power to live this kind of life. That's why upon these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Never think that a person is going to get to heaven by obeying these two commandments. Nobody can earn their way to heaven. But once we're born again, we are so thankful for how good God has been to us, that now in response to that, not to earn from Him, but in response to that, we want to keep these two commandments. Now I close with this. Jesus then poses... A question, two questions actually, to the Pharisees in verse 41. What do you think, he said to them, about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now it looks like Jesus is just like doing a complete 90 out of what he's been involved in. This is what does one thing have to do with another? But when Jesus talks about the hanging, talks about the cross, talks about the way of fulfilling here in all of this, he goes in this passage from answering their questions to, uh, to uh, the asking the Pharisees two questions of his own in order that they might recognize him as the Messiah, make him their personal Savior by putting their faith in Him and thus receiving the will to do and the power to do the keeping of these two commandments. He, they asked Him for the what, but now He's going to give them the how. 
And so he poses, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they reply, the son of David. They believed that the Messiah would come from the bloodline of King David. That he would be a physical descendant of King David. But that that's all he would be. That he would be a great man, but that he would be a mere man. They did not believe that the Messiah, when he came into the world, would be divine or God in human flesh, as Jesus claimed himself to be. And so Jesus then takes them to that very, very David that they're talking about in Psalm, to Psalm 110, written by David, by the Holy Spirit, as a witness to the fact that when the Messiah came, he would be more than a man. In fact, he would be divine. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, uh, where David calls the Messiah Lord. Again, verse 44. The Lord, that is God the Father, David said, said to my Lord, speaking of the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Only the Messiah would be invited to sit at the right hand of the Father till I make your enemies your footstool. And here you have King David, the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel, who would set the standard for kings by which all of the kings would be judged subsequently. Here is this King David calling the Messiah Lord. And if David, the greatest of all human kings, calls this Messiah Lord or Master, then the Messiah must be something more than a mere man. And the Bible did teach that the, the Old Testament prophecies did teach that the Messiah would be born of the bloodline of David, would be of, of his lineage, but, uh, but to be born of David would make him to be less than David. In the same way that a son was always less than his father in terms of position or authority. So how in the world can Messiah, Jesus is saying, be born of David's lineage and be lesser by virtue of it, and yet David declares the Messiah to be greater than him by calling him Lord and Master? And the obvious and the only explanation is that Psalm 110, and David himself by the Spirit of God clearly declares that Messiah will be both David's son and David's Lord, that is, that he will be both human and divine, just as Jesus was and just as Jesus is. Some people say, why is it so important to believe in the deity of Christ, that he was the Son of God and God the Son? Can't I just believe in him as just a great man, a great example in human history? No, you can't. And here's why. It is because Jesus is and was divine that he was sinless. And it is only because he was sinless that he was able to provide sinners with the forgiveness of their sins. It is very unwise to tinker with the revelation of the Bible concerning Jesus because you will take things away that you don't even know what you're taking away. You cannot have a sinful Savior any more than a drowning man can be saved by another drowning man. And if you have a sinful Savior, you have a Savior that can't save. Just like you have a dog that can't hunt, 
If Jesus is not divine, He's not sinless. If He's not sinless, He can't save. You're stuck with a Savior that can't save. And that's why it's important to Jesus to speak to these religious leaders and give them something to think about when they walk out of His presence concerning understanding the importance of the fullness of who He was and, and what He was. And their response in verse 46 was uh, complete silence. And so these great representatives of the three sects of Judaism ceased their attempt to trap Jesus. He has passed his oral exams for them. Strike one, strike two, strike three. They're out. They give up now. They begin to oppose him in a different way. How valuable is it that Jesus himself has provided us with the two greatest commands for us to obey in life. Pretty wonderful. You don't have to take a flight to the other side of the world to climb up to the top of the Himalayas to meet with a guru there to find out where the life is that God has intended us to live. It's right here in the Bible and little old Modesto sitting on our laps. You don't have to join Jason and the Argonauts and go and try and find the golden fleece and all the trouble that they had trying to find that golden fleece. It's a lot simpler than that. The meaning, the purpose, the fulfillment in life, the greatest use of heart, mind, soul, and strength, the greatest way to, to use these things not only related to God and related to man is found right here on the pages of Scripture. Those are two great commandments that result in the greatest life that a human being can live. That's why you find so many people later on in their life where they've excelled in politics, they've excelled in business, they've excelled in some kind of a field, they have some kind of financial cushions that allow them to maybe launch out and do something different. And at that point in time, so often a person is looking and saying, I want to do something meaningful with my life. I know it's more than money. I know it's more than power. I know it's more than reputation and rising to the top of the heap and proving that I can do it. I'm still on the search for the meaning of life. And the life that I know that I've been made to live, it's still a mystery to me out there. And it's the search that goes on all of the time. And the search, and the fulfillment of the search is found in obeying those two commandments. But it begins with a spiritual birth. And if you've never been born again and never made Jesus your Savior, that's where it starts. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. They'll have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to receive forgiveness and salvation and a personal relationship with God as a free gift today. Because God has paid the price to make it a free gift to us. And to begin this life where all of life is found. Come forward after the service and begin that life today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.